The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present, and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first traders, who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia. Hi, I'm Paul Zara, CEO of the Australian Retailers Association, and welcome to Season 6 of the Retail Therapy Podcast, proudly brought to you by American Express. In today's retail landscape, it's vital to understand the nuance and intricacies of diversity, equality and inclusion. It isn't just a buzzword, but a powerful force driving innovation and change across the sector. In each episode this season, we'll be focusing on the specific branch of the DNI tree, speaking to pioneers and leaders in their respective fields. Joining me for some retail therapy focusing on diversity, equality and inclusion is Layla Najahibri, CEO of the Australian Fashion Council. Layla was a pivotal force in steering the Australian fashion industry through the pandemic and her personal story showcases the amazing benefits of embracing culturally diverse women in leadership positions. Layla has been instrumental in the creation of the standardised Australian fashion trademark and a fantastic role model for the retail industry. Layla, welcome. Thank you so much, Paul. Now, Layla, I understand you're an accountant by trade. I actually did not know that up until researching for this particular podcast. That that probably makes sense, but I was a, was a surprise. Can you talk us through the journey to ultimately leading the Australian Fashion Council? Sure. So I'm actually an economist by trade, and I majored in accounting and did a bit of commercial law as well here at the at Sydney University. Wow. And of course, went through the usual big four at the time uh, stream. You know, as an intern first at Arthur Anderson of all places, wow. and then you, as an auditor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm very, I'm very dated. Like I mean, I'm happy to say that. And then after Arthur Anderson, we actually moved back to Lebanon when the war had kind of stopped there for a little bit. And yeah. I, I was having my first child and worked for the United Nations there for a little wow. bit as well. Moved back when things didn't go very well over there. And then what year was this? Like? Uh, we moved back at the end of 1999. Right, so okay. Australia was um, in a great space. We were having the Olympics. But when I first moved here, it was actually 1990. And, you know, Australia was really going through a res- recession at the time. Right. And the only jobs there were were, were for accounting jobs. So even though I was like uh, had done economics I'm like I have to do something where I can actually find a job yeah, yeah. and I got a job in uh, in accounting in, well I studied accounting and got a job um, there but um when I got back, uh, I waited until my kids, I was doing some part-time work and so on but I waited till my kids were at primary school and then decided that I I love numbers. I, I'm actually yes. just like numbers, like math. That's my thing. But I'm also like, I don't like numbers for the sake of numbers. And finance wasn't really my thing. Yeah. So I thought, what do I like? Well, I loved fashion, always have, obsessed since I was a kid. And I thought, what can I do in fashion? Hmm, buying sounds like a thing. So anyway, I ended up doing a postgraduate degree part-time at uh, MGSM in marketing and management and started to apply left, right, and center. And then I landed, this is where luck comes into things, a job at Prada as a maternity leave uh, assistant buyer merchandiser role. This is in Sydney. In Sydney. No experience whatsoever. You know, you know, for you, in Australia, I found whenever you wanted to get a job, everyone would say, what's your, you know, 
do you have any experience? But how do you get experience yeah, yeah. if you want to get into yes, a yes, job, yes, right? Yes. So I was very, very lucky. That's uh, the beginning of uh, the rest of the story, I guess. And um, I moved from Prada to Luxottica, which is one of the largest uh, eyewear uh, companies in the world. Worked there as a brand manager for Chanel and eventually luxury brands. Ended up taking care of the wholesale side of the business. Worked at Helen Kaminsky for eight years, moving oh. from Asia business manager to GM role and started to think about at that time, my kids had grown and I was starting to think about, you know, I've been in this career for, you know, almost at the time, almost 20 years. And I'm like, what do I want to do next? And the commercial side of things was starting to really lose its attractiveness to me, the yes. idea of selling for the sake of selling, even yes. though I still loved the beauty of of what the fashion industry can bring. I also saw a lot of cracks yeah. and I saw a lot of uh, ugliness in the industry. And I started to think, what do I want to do about this? So I got involved with Australian Fashion Council, started to do some workshops and, and some mentoring and um, ended up being asked to go on the board. And from that was asked to apply for the CEO role and was probably the last thing I ever thought I would do would yeah. become the CEO of the AFC. But, you know, almost four, long, year, four, say, years four years later. Okay, so there yeah. you go. So it's, it, time it's really, really years, flies. Yeah. Have you encountered any challenges related to your cultural diversity in your career? When you think about coming from Lebanon, really having a, no background necessarily in fashion because, in fact, it was your – uh, an accountant by trade, but an sure. economist background. Yeah, um, they generally don't sit hand in hand in the fashion industry. Most totally. um, fashion people actually outsource those skills because they're more on the creative side. How do you feel your cultural diversity is either? helped or challenged your, your, you currently? Sure. So in Lebanon, you know, I was brought up during the war and it was very challenging, but we were also very exposed to Europe and the US. And so, you know, we'd travel as a family to Europe. We were all our TV, all our music, everything else was, was very much, yeah. from my perspective, I went to a, uh, an American school. So it was very much American based, but also Europe was very entrenched in our culture because Lebanon was called colonized by the French yes. in early uh, 20th century. And so I was very exposed to fashion. And believe it or not, Lebanon is incredibly, within a certain part of the society, very much about fashion. It's, yes. it's, uh, it's a little, um, you know, microcosm of that, if you like. And so in that, from that perspective, I was very, had kind of a, an understanding, I guess, of cosmopolitan fashion. When I interviewed with Prada and I spoke French and whatever, there was that kind of, I guess, side of me that had that advantage to yes. potentially other yes, yes, people yes, in yes, my yes. class or whatever. Would not have had. Exactly. There, there, of course, like if everyone else, there's that piece around the reputation of the Lebanese community in Australia, in particular in Sydney, especially with what was happening at the time and still ha happening now, right? And so, you, you know, the first thing you're asked, oh, you're Lebanese, a huge surprise. And then, oh, your English is so good. You know, things that are a little bit condescending and mm. I know they're not yes. meant to be, oh, you're so eloquent. Yeah, oh, yeah. you, whatever. Yes, yes, and yes, yes. it's by nature of that by comment. nature. Yes. And, you know, I've, I found myself doing it to other cultures sometimes inadvertently. So yes. I'm not, you know, but it, 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 you know, I've had a, a boss say to me very lovingly, Urefo once, you know, right. and, you know, I didn't take it to heart because I, I'm not triggered by that. I don't have that. Um, there are other things that trigger me. Uh, particularly uh, where gender equality is an yes. issue, I get triggered 
pretty bad. Mm. But um, in terms of my, I guess, cultural heritage, I'm confident. I do feel sad that, you know, everyone's going to, you know, if some parts of the community perhaps are not assimilating really well, it gives like a yes. broad brushstroke to everyone. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's been it's been interesting. But really, I have to say, I'm very privileged. And so I haven't had a real kind of traumatic experience around my cultural heritage. Mm. Now, you referenced, Layla, the reputation of Lebanese in, in Australia. Dates back, I'm assuming, back to the 1970s or thereabouts. I, I think it's so. It's a long, long time exactly. ago. Can you explain that for the listeners? Yeah. So my understanding, I only moved here in 1990 and I came to study and I was with my um, my partner at the time and um, my husband at the time, mm. actually. We'd just gotten married. And but we came to Australia and we realized that the Lebanese community had moved mostly here in the 40s and 50s when there was a, from the villages of Lebanon when there was a famine and the, so it was like a, an opportunity to go yes. and really experience you know um uh, to to change the um you know the, their pathway for themselves and their families yes. whereas when i came here you know i had come from beirut not to say i was better in any shape or form it was just like a different experience yeah. so i had uh i guess again the privilege of having a great education a lot of exposure i didn't really feel the need to assimilate with my just because someone's Lebanese that yes. I was going to be friends with them. I just wanted to assimilate with my people, yes, if that yes, makes any yes. sense. And I have a great group of friends and, you know, two of them are like from New Zealand, two of my best, best friends. I don't know why, right? I have a German friend. I have all sorts of friends and of course, Australian friends. But yeah, it was, it was very interesting to see that what had happened is that this group of disadvantaged, I guess, Lebanese people had come to Australia. They congregated. And I do believe that the fact that there isn't a good process of assimilation yes. that kind of is part of the immigration process that causes ghettos, that causes, you know, areas where people potentially continue to maybe bring some of the inappropriate cultural behaviors that, you know, do not fit in Australia. No. Whereas they bring also some beautiful things like yes. the food and the culture and the love and the family and all that sort of stuff. So we've got to find a way of bringing the wonderful things, but also ensuring that um, the important values of being an Australian are also upheld yes. and, and loved by those who come here. Do you think it's a very different, diverse culturally today compared to maybe a few decades ago where we're very much, much more a multicultural society, but in many ways there's still that divisiveness, isn't there, that you talk about between, you know, many different cultures because if you think about the 50s, it would have been very much a white Australian, there was the whole white, white Australian policy, but equally anyone that came from another country was seen to be different and actually to be obviously scared of as well. Yep. Today, I think that's a little bit different. Do you think that's fair to say? Or Absolutely. I really see it, and in particular in metropolitan Australia. But if you go out of Sydney and Melbourne. The big cities. And the big yeah. cities and go even to Queensland. I think you'll see, I've seen like a difference in between, let's say, 
the Gold Coast and or or even Brisbane sometimes yes. with with Australia with Sydney and Melbourne. Same thing with Adelaide and Perth. You see that so discrepancy. The so the Queenslanders listening to our podcast, <laughs> I do not be offended, but I do know. No, what you mean. no, I love Queensland, and I actually you know have a lot of friends who are Queenslanders. So please don't be offended. <laughs> not at all. I'm just but saying there's cultural that differences amongst are, us. Yeah, it, there it, are it, those sort of yeah. subcultures that set yeah. in, and actually, and, uh, it and comes think, back to the population size. I think in experiencing that diversity, totally. And the, I think immigration opened more. More for people in Sydney and Melbourne because of you know the yes. opportunities. Agree, agree. Did you come to Sydney or to, you went Sydney. to Sydney first? Okay, yeah. because in fact my heritage being Maltese, mm. uh, Zara's a Lebanese. That's word. right. Yeah, so it's yeah. interesting. It's, it's it like means a flower. flower. Yeah, yeah, which I which I yeah. do love. Yeah, and there must be some sort of heritage there or history. But in Melbourne, it was very much very much the way the Europeans actually all went to settle. So we saw those subcultures form mm. and those, in fact, the the good and the bad actually being sort of amplified. And yep. so I understand completely what you're saying. Yeah. Now, diversity is so important to the retail sector. Diversity of thought, equal opportunities, they can make a business prosper. From your standpoint, are there still barriers to overcome? Do you think? Absolutely. I think there are so many barriers to overcome and I see it in our industry glaringly. And I talk about the fashion industry, but the retail industry as well. If you look at the consumer base, there is such a schism between who's consuming and who's representing at sea level and at board level. And I think that that's where you start to need a change. Mm. It's it's imperative for us to actually deliver from a economic perspective, a profit perspective, yes. but also from a people and planet perspective. Are we actually representing? And is merit? You know, I'm, I'm flipping. I'm flipping the the conversation here yes. because usually with gender equality issues, for example, people will say to you, "Well, it's about representation and merit." But I'm actually asking the question from a flip side. Are the people on those boards actually representative and do they have merit Mm. to be there? Very good point. This whole meritocracy or merit as a conversation, we often get caught up in it. In fact, you know, when you, when you think about it, the, sometimes process, the process doesn't not lead to a merit based decision. Yeah. Um, there's been lots written about that, you know, to highlight the fact that in fact that, um, even through an interview process, often there may not even be an interview process when you're talking about boards. There could be somebody that's, that, that as a colleague of the chairman on a, a golf course that yep. actually gives the entree into that world. And there's no merit based decision in that other than their, their, their CV. And that's often been driven by the same sort of outcome. Absolutely. And I find myself being caught in that sometimes as well. Now that I'm in a position of power, Mm. relative, of course, it's very relative, but relatively, you know, I see myself uh, reaching out to those I know, not like I think they have yes. merit, of course, yes. but you usually reach out to mirrors. It doesn't need to be cultural and mirror. It could no. be spiritual mirror, mirror, or um, mostly even an intellectual mirror, right? Yeah. So yes, when you, yes, yes. for example, you're a woman, you're in your early fifties, uh, you've gotten to a certain place. You know, women in that in that kind of uh, world, and you reach out to them, and you end up. You know, wanting women like yourself, yes, but yes. should we be doing the, doing that? I think not. Now, how has your cultural background and identity shaped your leadership and decision making? Sure. I think there's an absolute focus or I have a thing that I think has come as a direct outcome from living in a war zone, which is resilience mm. and also kind of a thinking outside, outside the square uh, approach to things. Because when you're brought up in war, yes, uh, regardless of 
any other circumstance, forget about the fact that I'm a woman, forget about the fact that I'm a f- from a conservative society. All of these things add to that resilience and the need to think outside the square to get yourself out of situations that, you know, potentially um, someone else, you know, would find really hard to get yes. themselves out of. So I've had to with all my privilege, and I've had a lot of it, I, I continue to say this because there's so much more intersectionality happening, you know, with someone like me. But, you know, if you add up some of the, the I guess, barriers to privilege that I've yes. had as a woman, as someone who was uh, born a Muslim, uh, even though I'm a, uh, I'm agnostic, uh, but also, as I said, conservative family, war, uh, came here early, you know, got married early, all sorts of things. But then, all of these things also have a really bright side or yes. a, a silver lining, which is how do you get yourself, you know, to think outside the square to always be like, why not? You know, I survived so much. Um, and I, I can, I don't really see a lot of impediment in front of me because mm-hmm. it's like, well, there's nothing, you know, nothing to lose really. Did you think that that heritage and those experiences actually helped you to accept difference in others? A hundred percent. But they also, you know, there's different types of, um, I guess, discrimination. And the way I was brought up as well in Lebanon, there's a lot of discrimination within society in Lebanon. Mm. There is racial discrimination, but on different levels, Right. right? And so for me, it's been a journey of, accepting what I was brought up in and within and also growing and really challenging every single thing that I was brought up with. Uh, How my parents, my parents are great people, but they also, you know, were brought up in a certain uh, cultural setting. Yes. And it could have been really easy for me to just kind of take what they gave me and be like, okay, here we go. This is what we're going to do next, especially Mm. with my kids. Mm. And, in some instances, I I did kind of start to kind of pass on these restrictions to my kids, but they, as young adults who have uh, grown up in Australia, have been amazing at saying to me, no, why? Mm-hmm. And so it's, I think, what is really important for, for all of us and where diversity and inclusion can be very helpful is questioning everything. Mm. Whereas I fear that when we are, you know, in groups that are very similar, we tend to just try to agree with each other mm. on, you know, saying, oh, yeah, that's right, because everyone thinks that that's right. So that's where the big danger of assimilation um, can, yeah, can strike. You raised some good points there. What steps can retail organisations take to ensure their leadership teams reflect the diversity of their workforce and customer base? And we talked about boards a little bit. Sure. But, you know, you know, we, sh- we should be looking at boards and saying they've got to reflect their customer base. Yeah. We know many retail organisations, they don't. Yeah. For a start, many of, sure. there's still many today that don't even have a 50% um, gender equality, which not is even, hard, hard to not believe, even right? But close. that's still the case. So. It's not even close. It's mm. not in the 20% mm. <laughs> at the moment. Mm. So, uh, it, it depends, of course, on, on the size of the, um, the organization. But I can tell you in private organizations, and, you know, most of the businesses in Australia are SMEs, the representation on, on boards in terms of diversity, uh, and in particular, like, let's start with gender equality, yes. half the population. It's just almost non-existent, which mm. is quite scary. Um, but let's talk about active 
diversity, like diversity and inclusion as a verb rather than a an, an, an um, and an adjective or an adverb. Does that yes, make sense? Yes, so yes. if we can practice diversity and inclusion, and you know, I don't have all the answers. All I know is that you have to actively, no matter how hard it is, because you know you you will face um, obstacles. You might not be able to hire, uh, you know, someone with the qualifications you need. Let's say if you're trying to have more inclusion of indigenous, you know, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander Australians, or, yes. uh, of course, women is one area, disabled Australians is yes. another. There's so many areas. Mm. Young men. I mean, I find in our fashion industry, where are the young men? Yes, right? good point. They're all in the C-suite and the boards. Great. Mm. But why are they not working in our industry? Industry mm. And what's the impediment? Mm. There's a lot of work we need to do in the industry. But I think it's about the active um, pursuit of diversity and not thinking of it as a nice to have, but a must have. What type of legacy are you hoping to leave on the sector? So... As I said to you, when I first joined the board of the AFC, and then when they asked me to apply for the role of CEO, I said to the board, you know, if I come in, I mean, fashion and all that lovely stuff, I've done that for 20 years, and I've had the most amazing experience, but that's, I'm not a fashionista. Mm. I will come in and I want to change the industry, yes. literally. Yes. And if I've managed to, uh, you know, move a grain of rice worth in this industry in Australia, where um, we start to think about people and planet a lot more, absolutely our job as the AFC, and I, I know with you as well, you know, keeping the industry th thriving and making sure it's economically viable is very important. We can't do anything without money. But moving away from the thought process that all that matters is profit, yes. even though we say we care about the environment, we say we care about people, we actually need to do more than report on it mm. or say we're doing this or that. We need to actively change the way we're behaving. And I believe that um, with incorporating our, uh, the Australian fashion trademark, and also uh, with the work we've done around Seamless, the product stewardship scheme, this is the beginning mm. of the just transformation, as I like to call it. So a fair transition for business and workers and the planet yes. towards a circular economy by 2030. So if if that's if I've started that you know that change, I will be a happy woman. You've touched on this in, in a really strong way, I guess, around you've leading a charge on sustainability. Mm. What do you think the sector has to do differently? Like what, what needs to change? I think fundamentally the idea that the brands or retailers are not responsible for the impact of the clothing or any fashion items that they're selling has to change. It's a mm. mindset change. It's really difficult. You know, anyone who's been... Uh, in a privileged position and you start to ask them to, to have more responsibility. Think of kids. Yes. Right? Or your partner or yes. whatever. Yes. Who have been used to like never doing the dishes. I'm just giving you a silly example. Yes. And then one day you're like, I'm not doing the dishes anymore. And they're like, why? You know. <laughs> and I feel it's the same with the industry that they are now being asked to take care of things and people and planet, as yes. I, I say again, that they hadn't been uh, they haven't had to worry about They're before. not been accountable for. Exactly. And then, but then explaining to them that they need to change some of the business models. I yes. think that's the most important thing. 
and that in asking them to move away from a volume uh, sort of uh, model to a uh, value model from a linear model of buy, use, and and dispose to a circular model of rethink, reuse, and recycle is super hard. But I also am a big believer because I actually have done it myself in previous roles in commercial business where I've actually moved and changed business models to smaller volumes, higher value, higher net profit, higher profit margins. It is so doable. Mm -hmm. And so in the same way that people around the uh, industrial revolution and technology of revolution were virtually you know, pushing away the idea mm. that they did not want change. People are pushing away the idea that they don't want change now to industry 4.0 and 5.5.0. Right. But it's just if we, if there is a, a, a spirit of let's hold hands and do this together. Yes. We don't want people to be without a job. We don't want business to, you know, you know, go bankrupt in the, it's yes. the opposite. Because we want a sustainable business model. Exactly. Right? So exactly. are you finding in the work you're doing too, Layla, that you've got, um, Two camps is is as black and white as that the the camp that has been progressive and actually on the they're on the journey and they they're looking for progress rather than perfection but they're learning and they're yep. trying to do their best. Yep. Two camps just refuse to actually even give it a moment's thought. I don't think it's as black and white as that. I think there are those who are you know digging their their heels in and saying no way I'm not going to be responsible for this. But I'm doing all of this, yeah, la, yeah. la, 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 which is not at, it, as much as wonderful as some of this really hard work, like some brands are doing, as as that work is uh, really progressive in some ways. They're not really changing. They're sticking or attaching themselves to the old way of doing yes. business. And, you know, I can... I've thought about retail a lot. And in this context, I think it's, it's worth having this conversation. So for example, the idea of big retail, when I worked, you know, on, on Chanel, when I was with Luxottica and all the luxury brands, I remember the idea of the bigger, the stand that you have in the department store. I was, I was actually working with David Jones at the time and at the launch of the eyewear section there yes. in Burke Street. Yes. And so, you know, Chanel wanted the largest wall to have the most, you know, uh, amount of merchandise and same, di- same, you know, so did Bulgari and Tiffany and whatever, all of those guys. It's a department store's nightmare, by the way, yeah, because you've got limited space. It but is. Yes, it I, is. It was I a nightmare. Know being on the receiving end of those Absolutely. conversations. But then uh, I think now if we're able to really just rethink all of that and think it's like, is it about the space and the width of the space mm. or is it about what we show? Why do we need these massive collections, for yes. example? Why do we need seasonality? Why do we need women's wear and men's wear? Yes. There's so many things we need to <clears throat> challenge. I'm not saying we do it today. I'm just saying let's start to think about it and be open to the fact uh, that it will need to happen. Yeah. My big gripe is the short-termism of our incentive programs, whether it's salaries or, you know, bonuses or, you know, yes. quarterly results versus what we need to do, which is plan for the long term. Yeah, good point. So, Paul, over yes. to you. How do you fix that? No, well, that's, <laughs> that is a tough one. And I think partly yeah. um, when I think about, um, and I've always thought about this, in fact, I know a lot of the work I've done in my previous role yeah. um, running a department store, whereas actually the incentives are all paid to short-term thinking mm-hmm. because you've, you know, it's a bit like politicians that go into, they're, they're there for a term. They know if they, they don't achieve those results quickly, they will be in either sacked or yep. uh, voted out. 
Um, so it is a bit of a pressure. The whole system needs to be turned on its head. And I do think, you know, when it comes back to materialism, it's it's going to be one of those things where we've got to drive that, you know, and the question's right, you know, we need fewer, better things. Maybe the cost of living crisis may actually yep. drive that. We're starting to think, actually, I'm going to buy fewer things, but I'm going to make sure they're really the best I can afford. Sure. Uh, gender is an interesting piece because there should be no gender in sunglasses or in fragrance or in many of the things that we, we they're not, they've got nothing to do with somebody's um, size. Totally. Um, and, and a lot of these are now being challenged around actually having greater greater versatility so we've got appealing to a much broader customer and you know i always thought things like you know hearing dressmakers now saying we're now creating dresses that can actually that can grow with you <laughs> you know i like that That's terminology right. i've Bianca heard that spender, Bianca spender said that, that and i love that yeah. love that terminology because the minute you might just <laughs> put on a little bit of weight that the dress is no longer required and it gets uh, sent to landfill at worst so that's what we're not what we want to see so I think, you know, there's a lot to be said. The industry sort of thrived on selling more, selling more, but we want to sell probably less and better product and the values in the eye of the beholder. It's never really just around price because you can, it's not just about paying the lowest price, it's actually paying a price for something that has longevity. And I think when we buy things, you, you, the, the mentality's changed around it having, um, a life beyond the original owner. Correct. So it can be either passed down or, or sold on or something else, um, that actually keeps it outside of, uh, landfill. Now I'm going to read the conversation back a little bit back to the, the conversation around cultural diversity because, mm. You know, when we think about um, in Australia, we have a very high female population. It's close to 60% within the retail industry. But when you get to the CEO's role, it's uh, the C-suite roles, it's like less than 17%. So quite a massive jump of women dropping out of those um, or not progressing. When you add the cultural diversity, it actually even gets worse. So that that is a concern. I think I'd be keen to hear your advice about what you would give other culturally diverse individuals who may aspire to hold leadership roles in retail and fashion sectors. What what advice would you give them, given your own personal journey? Sure. So, I mean, there is a, the, the usual advice of, you know, go for it and, you know, try and, you give know. Give it your best shot. Give it your best shot and work hard and all of that works mm. because, you know, yes. it, it worked for me. But, and I've been lucky, but, and I've had other privileges in education and, and, and also community, whatnot. I, I think it's time for us to take that onus away from that, you know, underprivileged group. Mm. It's time for the hierarchy or the leaders yes. to take responsibility. Yeah. It's like when we say to indigenous uh, Australians, you know, come on, you can do this well yes. when you've had so much. Uh, so many obstacles. Obstacles, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. many obstacles stacked against you. Mm. It's really hard to do. I agree. So it's time for, I would say, a form of affirmative action. Right. I know that that has so many, really, it's, it's an area that makes people very worried because of, it can have negative consequences. But we've tried the piece around, oh, merit will do it. Well, mm. merit hasn't done no. it. And um, to be in 2023 and still have those stats, and I bet you, Paul, from a shopping perspective in retail, it's even more than 60% that oh, women. Oh, it's actually 75% of shopping exactly. is done by women. So so, so yeah. the discrepancy between you know who's representing mm. and who's actually buying, I mean, it still boggles 
my mind that yes. people need to be convinced that a board needs to have female representation when most of the people buying are females. Like yes. seriously. Yes. Doesn't make um, sense. It does not make any sense. So I think it's time for us to whoever, you know, anyone in the in a position of relative power, whatever yes. that means. If yes. you're the prime minister, uh president of the world or, you know, a lowly, you know, <laughs> CEO of whatever of an organization that is relatively small. We have to stand up for, for yes. what's right. It does not mean we're killing the fun. No. It doesn't mean we don't like money. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that we don't want business to prosper. Yeah. But we just need to actually stand up for what matters. Yeah. And I really thought COVID was making a change. And maybe it did for a while. Mm. But I sometimes wake up and I'm driving to work or whatever. And I'm thinking nothing has changed. We've gone back virtually on the same train. And sometimes it's going faster. Yes. So that worries me a little bit. Do, do you think some might say too, I think for culturally diverse women, they've got other – so you talked about resilience and I think that's a really good point because I think um, culturally diverse women, particularly from war-torn countries, uh, there's no doubt they would be so much more resilient given their own personal experiences. Yep. Do, do you think that coming from a diverse cultural background also gives you challenges around the embedded culture? You touched slightly on your mm -hmm. parents and about questioning things. Is that yeah. a, is that really a tip for women that have a cultural uh, difference that they, you know, they've got to question. I mean, they've got to respect the tradition because tradition is really embedded in, and religion has a part, big part to play with that. Do you think they've got to question that and not just, cause I think there are, in my own personal experience, I see for both men and women, yeah. they either, they, they either fall in line with the behaviors of their parents, which is most of my brothers and sisters. Sure. Um, actually all of them. Um, or they might, they might take a different path and start to say, oh, actually, that's not quite right for me. And I'm going to yeah. challenge some of these belief systems yeah. and, and, um, uh, these boundaries. 100%. And you know, in particular for women, when you've been socialized over centuries and, and a millennia actually to be subservient, to be okay with the fact that you are, uh, your main aim is to sacrifice. Your main aim is to give. It's a beautiful thing in some ways. It's actually lovely when you're a mom and because you have to do it anyway. So mm. you might as well have that feeling that, you know, want to do it. Not always, trust me. But, <laughs> but yes, you know, yes. but, and, and it also has brought, uh, a, a lot of, I believe, humanity into the business world because we have had that, but it can be used against you. And it has been, in my experience, used against me. I've been taken advantage of because of that. And I wouldn't want to, I guess, uh, you know, advise any woman to accept that sort of behavior. To your point, both men and women, though, any culture, any upbringing, you know, just ask yourself that yes. question. Why? You know, I think, you know, I think it's so important for us to get off that whatever treadmill or, uh, or, you know, the push that society is pushing yes. us. I, I will say in our culture, in our society here in particular and, and everywhere in the world, there's this thing about what we've been brought up to think of as success. And then there is a, a cognitive dis dissonance between what your parents have actually taught you as, as what's a good person. So a good person doesn't lie, is kind and loving and nurturing and all of that. But then success is your position, how much money you have. Mm. And so there's that huge schism is something we need to repair because really who cares how much stuff you have if you are 
depressed, depressed, uh, or you know, you, you have an addiction. Yeah, yeah. I have, point. you know, all of that. Who cares? And, and we see a lot of that with people with lots of money. Exactly. In fact, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. How many yachts you have? It doesn't really matter. We like stuff. We need economic security. We need shelter. We need education and healthcare. We need basics as mm. human beings, uh, and we need some fun. Trust me, we all need some fun. And I mean, you know, I look at you. I know you understand what I'm talking of about. Of course. But we, I'm not sure we all need all of that, especially when it's so clear that it's not working. Yeah. So build your own pathway and make sure it's, um, totally. you know, you, you understand yeah. your history as a having that cultural diversity yeah. and the tradition, totally. but equally making sure that um, you're not lured into um, having a false sense of security. Yep. And on that note, I appreciate you joining us for some retail therapy. I really enjoyed our conversation, Layla. All the best for the work that you do at Australian Fashion Council. We love working with you at the Australian Retailers Association and best of luck in the future. Thank you so much, Paul. I really enjoyed that too. Thanks for joining us on the Amex Lounge for some retail therapy. Make sure you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. We can be found wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. For more information about the work we do at the Australian Retailers Association, head to our website, retail.org.au. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, wherever you love to connect. All the links can be found in the show notes. I can't wait to talk retail therapy with Australia's retail leaders and share these conversations with you, the future leaders, business owners and innovators of the industry.